Well, hello. The question of the day is, does division always cause destruction? When a husband and a wife start to grow their family with children, they each provide a cell, a gamete, to begin the process. Now, if these two cells meet and combine, the spark of life erupts and the process begins. These two cells are no longer present. They've combined to form a completely new and unique entity, impossible to find anywhere else. Now the mother can provide more eggs and the father can provide more sperm, but the two, once joined, have forever changed. In about 10 hours, it will become a diploid organism by genetic recombination. And it'll then duplicate cells repeatedly and the cells will eventually specialize and form and function into things such as brain cells and liver cells and bone cells, creating all the systems and parts of a fully developed child. This process of cell division continues throughout the lifetime of every individual, and it's said that every cell is replaced within seven years. So every seven years, you're new. Now a cell that replicates uncontrollably becomes deadly to the surrounding cells and the organism as a whole. We call this cancer. It exposes itself either as a tumor from excessive replication and no elimination of the old dysfunctional cell. They just repeat, they duplicate and duplicate and duplicate, growing into these tumors. Or it can produce an inactive cell. It can just stop doing what it's supposed to do. And it encourages inactivity in the surrounding cells. In society, we can view these as two types of people. And these are just generalities, but if you have a family that has generational welfare, so this successive mothers having multiple children, all of whom eagerly join the ranks of welfare recipients, they replicate and replicate, but they're not really giving back to society. They're not taking their full place in society. Or we can look at an adult man who's living in his mother's basement without participating or providing for the care of the home or the finances but may spend hours hanging out with other like-minded individuals, mostly online. So that kind of division can be destructive. But the first kind of division of our, the cells in our body is what gives life. So as we return to scripture and society and see how these two meet, we're gonna look at division causing destruction or division causing growth, good growth. This is the Living Brightly Podcast with Elaine Cross. And I'm Elaine Cross, I'm your host, where we share biblical truth and help you develop your relationship with God. In so doing, empower you to radiate your light out to those around you from a biblical worldview. So we look a little bit at politics, we look a little bit at the word, and we look a little bit about how we fit in society as believers and what our role is to impact that society, to expand the kingdom of God and to let God's light radiate from us and push back against the chaos of the darkness. Thanks for joining me. Following the destruction of the second temple, there are many who have postulated reasons or ideas as to how they may have been able to prevent it from happening. Most notable is the idea of disunity amongst the Jews themselves. There are four divisions identified in this discussion. One, of course, is the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are very ritually strict. They hold fast and hard to the law. 
but they also hold fast to the oral tradition as a further clarification of what God means in his written word. So they explain all the nuances of how the average person was to apply the law to their life. Now, the second major group was the Sadducees, and they were the priesthood. They were living and serving with the temple. They followed the law, and they were very cognizant of following the law, but they rejected the addition of the oral Torah. So think about over-reliance on commentaries or teachers. And you can get into reading commentaries and teachers, and they can give you some insight into the word. But the word of God is truth, and ultimate truth is in the word of God. And that was where they stood. And, and yes, they dealt with people who were bringing sacrifices to the temple. They dealt with the quality and the substance of those sacrifices. Now, the Pharisees would get intermixed within that whole thing. But there was certainly a division between the priesthood of the Sadducees and the lawyers of the Pharisees. Now, the next group is the Zealots. And the Zealots are passionate nationalists. They loved Jerusalem, Israel. They wanted their country to not be oppressed. The country had been oppressed since the building of the Second Temple. So that whole time, those 417 years of the Second Temple, Israel was oppressed by some external government. It was the Persians, and it was the Greeks, and it was the Romans, and each one did their thing to torment the Jews. And there were times when they were not offering sacrifices because the Greeks in particular went in and really defiled the temple. And then they reconsecrated the temple, they cleaned the temple, and then they started doing sacrifices again. But this time of oppression had been 400 years, a long time. And these zealots wanted to throw off the oppressors. They wanted to get rid of the oppressors from Israel. Can't blame them. They drew a lot of negative attention from Rome, though. And they did that because they were a threat to Rome as a whole. You know, Rome didn't want to go to war with somebody that they had already warred against and taken over. And they also didn't want all these little fights and scuttles. They wanted peace. They wanted peace in the kingdom, in the Roman Empire. Now, the Pharisees supported the Zealots, and they affirmed what they were doing because they, too, wanted the oppression to stop. And I would say that most Jews did. But the Pharisees didn't really encourage or help or protect the zealots because they feared that if the zealots really did what they were trying to do, all the Jews would be annihilated. All the Jews would be just killed. They'd just slaughter them all. Now, of course, that kind of takes their eye off of God, doesn't it? That God is there to protect them. That They're God's chosen people. But the Jews are kind of known for forgetting about God in their life. It's all over the, the Bible. The fourth group was the Sekari. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it means dagger men. And these were kind of just anarchists. They would get an attitude against somebody and they would just go stab them. Now, it could be a Roman citizen. It could be a Roman leader. It could be a regular Jew. I'm sure they probably attacked some of the leadership, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, they just think of the Christians who were blowing up abortion clinics. This was a thing kind of in the 80s where the Christians were so frustrated with the abortion machine and the whole idea of that, that they they blew up abortion buildings, they attacked abortion doctors, and 
they're just anarchists. They're not really they're not really connected in a real good way to the community at large. So that's how these this Sakari were. But these Jews of today, looking back 1900 years, 2000 years, and kind of trying to make sense of what they did wrong and what they could fix and what they should do right, forget the whole concept of there was a, another thing going on. It wasn't just about the Jews. In this time, Jesus had come, and it was really about the whole world. And what was happening in Israel, in Jerusalem, was going to change the world forever, which it has. And of course, you and I know that this was the time when Christianity was born because this was when Jesus had come and he lived a sinless life and died a painful death in payment for our sins, was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and then he visited and met with people. And then he said, I have to go away so that my Father can send the Holy Spirit, and you will become the temple. So although what looked like destruction to the Jews, it was almost like this creation of a baby. God and man came together in the person of Jesus Christ and created this completely new and unique entity in this Savior. And then from that, others who believe in Jesus then become part of God's family. And as evidence, we get the Holy Spirit, part of God, comes to live within us as the living temple of God. So we don't look back 2,000 years and say, oh, it's time to build the temple. We look in the mirror and say, how am I treating the temple? What am I doing for the temple? How is this temple Is this temple burning bright? Is this temple letting its light so shine that others can see my Father in heaven? Am I pushing back against the darkness of this world? If you look at at Christian history, and it's a series of divisions, separations, it's a, a series of what could be looked at as destruction, which has really just catapulted expansion of the Word of God. In about 350 AD, it's about 350 years, well, 320 years, because the timeline is odd. It seems to be zero when Jesus was born, but the numbers aren't exactly perfect for those, because according to the Jews, like the Jesus's crucifixion or elements involved with his crucifixion it's like in the 28th year, and it's supposed to be the 33rd year, because he lived 33 years. Either way, we're just going to go with the Gregorian calendar. So 350 AD is what it says. It's really not AD. It's after Christ. The churches had expanded across the entire Roman Empire. Now, the entire Roman Empire covered a lot of the Middle East, all almost all of Europe, and almost all of Asia Major. Now, it wasn't China but it was certainly up into the northern, southern Russian region and all those mid-European countries, Hungary and Poland and Germany and all that. So this is huge, huge empire. Well, you know, the bigger the empire, the bigger the empire, the more people groups, the more people groups, the more languages, the more languages, the more cultures. So the Roman Empire covered a huge, huge amount of landmass. 
and along with it, a lot of different cultures and languages and the way people lived life, even though they were all kind of under this umbrella of the Roman Empire. So how the church, how the Christians interacted with their respective civilizations and their languages brought up issues of debate or concern or whatever from about 350 BC up until about 800, or I'm sorry, 380 to 880, there were several ecumenical councils. And those were councils based on the whole church, the church as a whole. And they solidified different things like what is a Christian? What, what does it mean to be a Christian? Who is Jesus? Jesus is completely God and completely man. So they kind of decided all these things because there were different schools of thought and people were interpreting and and changing some things. And they're like, wait, 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 let's pull it all together. Let's come up with, this is what we believe. And that's where the Apostles' Creed came from and the Nicene Creed came from, where they had these very standards of what is a Christian? If you believe in these specific things, then you are a Christian. So if we look at what a Christian is, you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, eternal, omniscient, everlasting, who became a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, paid the punishment for our rebellion against God in an act known as the atonement. The atonement being his crucifixion, his being brutally beaten and hung on a cross till he died. Then you believe through his death on the cross and his resurrection, through that process, he atoned or paid for our sins, all of our sins. Now, this was 2,000 years ago, so we weren't even a thought in the ideas of people, but God knew and he paid for our sins way back then. So he covered our sins, your sin, my sin, the ones we did already, the ones we might do today, and any sin we may commit in the future, paid for on the cross. So Jesus is central to the Christian faith because we owe everything to him. And he represents this culmination of all God's promises to us through scripture because we are considered heirs with Christ. And the other big idea is the doctrine of the Trinity, that there are three persons or three attributes of God that make up one Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. It's not multiple gods, but it's God in presentation or understanding in these three titles or identities. And to deny any one of those is to deny the biblical teaching about God. So these are the basic tenets that they really had to nail down because there were debates about all these different things. And from today's perspective, it seems kind of settled if you're a Christian and you attend any kind of Christian church. Back then, it wasn't necessarily settled. People debated about all these different little things. So in contrast to that, there was a kind of this, the other side of the coin, if you will, to deny these things would mean the church was not a Christian church or the person was not a Christian person if they denied the Trinity, if they denied Christ's deity and his humanity, or if they deny God's sovereignty, or if they distort the Bible or misuse the Bible to support any of those things. The Bible was and is the perfect word of God and that God has the power to uh, 
God preserves his word. Men translate it into other languages through the power of the Holy Spirit who directs and leads to ensure that the the truth of God's word remains. And that seems pretty fundamental. It doesn't seem very divisive. It doesn't seem very destructive. And yet when they were working out these details, there were divisions and there was different camps that kind of centered around different ideas. And the church was always expanding. So as the church expanded, the more Christianity moved out, and of course, as more time went on post-apostles and even post-first-generation Christians, right? So you have, the, you have the people who actually heard Jesus, the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Christ, who were in the thousands. There were thousands of people heard Jesus Christ. Thousands of people saw him, witnessed his miracles, testified to his miracles, and who he was and what he did. Now, they didn't necessarily know everything, but there were thousands of people. And then as the, after Christ died and the teaching began, those people started to learn directly from the people who knew the most, his apostles, his disciples, his, his 12, or basically his 100, I would say. Because yes, he talks about his 12, but there were about 100 people with him by the end that were with him all the time. And then when those people died that learned from the apostles, and then those people, right, you get the timeline as successive generations expand more and more people, but it also goes further and further from those people who heard it firsthand. Thus, the the vital importance of the written word, the vital importance of those documents that solidified and contained Jesus's teaching, as well as the teaching of his apostles when they started to expand the kingdom beyond Judaism, beyond people who had a basic understanding of the Old Testament. Most Greeks had never read the Old Testament. They didn't read Hebrew, so they didn't know what the Old Testament text said. And of course, because Rome was the great empire, everything kind of congealed and Rome became the seat of Christian church. And we know that the Catholic church, the the Roman Catholic church is still in Rome and it maintains that seat. But that didn't translate well across the great expanse of the globe. And I'm going to take a minute right here and thank those of you who have helped produce the Living Brightly podcast. This is a value for value podcast. And if you're getting value from what I'm saying, and if you're getting value from what I'm sharing with you, I would ask that you go to elainecross.com, turn that value that you're getting into a number, whatever fits your budget help support this show through producing it by putting your time, talent, and treasure in. So the treasure is an amount that you come up with. The only amount that I don't find fair is zero. I put a lot of time and effort into this. I do the research. I produce it. I edit it. I add my artwork to it. I maintain the website and provide it to you freely. All I ask is that you help me produce it by providing a value back that you find fair. And I'm not going to tell you what that value is. You decide what it is, and then you send it in, and I will continue to provide this. So let's continue. Not long after the ecumenical councils, a couple hundred years, the differences 
or let's just say divisions, really began to become very clear. Now, these divisions had been festering for a long time. Uh, At this point, the Roman Empire, the Roman government had decided that the the empire was too big for one central governance. And this was the time of the Byzantines when Rome split the empire. Well, at the same time, there were divisions in the church. And these divisions are known as the Great Schism, which happened in 1050, thereabouts. And again, nothing happened exactly one day, although there was probably a day when, and they just kind of parted ways. It didn't happen instantly. It was a building and a division that that came about over a period of time based on different discussions. Now, one of the big issues with the Great Schism was you have the seat of power in Rome, which is in Latin, and you have the eastern regions, which includes much of Russia, Central Europe, what they consider the east part of the Roman Empire. Very different languages, very different customs, very different cultures. And what Rome was insisting was that all power, all major decisions had to go through Rome. And they're like, you know, it's not like we can send a fax. I can't do a video call. We're having these issues and we need to decide them. And you don't understand our culture. You don't understand what offends us and what doesn't offend us, how it translates into our language from Latin. And they wanted more local control, which I would argue is more biblical. You know, the local church, you and I are called to go spread the gospel. And Rome was trying to have a heavy hand in it. And of course, Rome was taking a percentage of all the donations to help support the church in Rome. And these divisions broke down under three basic ideologies. First of all, it was the power of Rome and the big idea that everything had to go through Rome and not be more local. And you also had the power of the Pope. And the Pope had been elevated in such stature that the Pope was, I don't know how to say it without finding sounding offensive, because I'm just I'm kind of at a loss of words. But it was like one person had more sway and more authority based on his position as the Pope. So with the title, like the title gave him so much authority under God. Now I look at it and I go, okay, Jesus had 12 disciples. And yes, he had his three and he had the one whom he loved. Or of course, he, the one whom he loved is the only one who says he's the one he loved. But <laughs> God didn't just tell one to be in charge and control the rest. Yes, they met together. They discussed things together. They, they really worked out a lot of the theology But you have Paul, who wasn't even part of that group, who became a huge missionary for Christ. And he was not an apostle. He was not a disciple. He was not even a follower of Christ. He hated Jesus Christ, and he hated Jesus Christ's followers who were trying to expand the kingdom of God. He was literally working for the Jews to kill the Christians. And yet Christ used him to spread the gospel. So that was a big issue between what became the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church. So you've got this idea of who's in charge and how much authority does 
the the local minister or bishop have. And what the Eastern Orthodox wanted, these smaller councils of bishops. So think of a state in the United States, and there would be several bishops within that state. And if there was a real issue, any of the pastors within the state could go to the bishops and say, hey, we're having this trouble. How can we fix this? What do you recommend? How should I handle it? Or what's the next step? And Rome completely, no, you you cannot do that. That's just not acceptable because everything has to come to us. And the other major difference was the idea of idols. And idols were, are objects that they use in worship. So if you go into a Catholic church, you'll notice there are lots of carvings and depictions of the stages of the cross or Mary when Jesus was an infant or other different things. But then you also have the veneration of saints. So you've got people that the Pope would decide were saints because of some extra work that they did for the church. And then they would have some kind of, they could be offered some kind of worship or attention. I don't even completely understand it all. But that was a huge difference between the Eastern Orthodox and the Western Catholic Church. So that's the Great Schism. That's this division, a huge division. And it didn't necessarily destroy the church. It did expand the church because it made the church in the Eastern Orthodox regions much more relevant by culture and language and authority structure to handle things there based on the people in the countries they were. And of course, now you have the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox. There's several of them. And that those two groups kind of coexisted for about another 500 years, 450 years. And there were more rumblings and divisions building in the Catholic Church again. And a lot of this, now that whole time from like 1050 to 1450 is known as the Dark Ages in Europe because there was so much feudalism, small little areas were fighting against small little areas. You know, at this point, the the Roman Empire was kind of disintegrating and politically, there were a lot of small little areas that were just fighting for stability in their region. So you had a lot of kind of regional unrest politically. And with that, you had either these small associations or these kings, little kingdoms, and under them were lords, which were landowners, and the landowners protected the peasants. Peasants were just the poor. They had nothing to do with anything. There was no way of advancing. They were poor, and they gave some of their money or some of their crops to the landowner to support the landowner or whatever taxes they came to get. And then some of it went to the king, You know, so the peasants were really, really poor, but they were really doing a lot of the work. And because there was so much of this kind of striving for who's going to control what property and what's going to happen, all these different fightings amongst themselves, that a lot of intellectual side of things suffered. There was very little advancement with technology, very little advancement with language, and there was just very little advancement with the culture in general, because everything was about trying to survive. So there's a lot going on in the Middle Ages. I don't have time to get into all the details of it. But 
it's it's really the the dark ages when western europe really didn't advance beyond this feudal lord fighting mess okay within that you had a lot of ministers a lot of priests who didn't know how to read didn't know how to write but they had been appointed to the priesthood as a position of power because the church had so much sway in what was happening politically that the Pope really used those positions to kind of garner favor for Rome. Now, there were highly educated people that were also ministers, and one of those was Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther is kind of called the father of the Reformation, but he wasn't by far the only one. And his 95 theses were, that was actually his second posting, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, nailed to the church door like everybody likes to say or describe. He sent it to other leaders in the churches and in the schools, think of seminaries, to debate and discuss. And some of the big issues he brought up was the Bible is the authority in all matters of faith and teaching. And the Pope is a sinner like the rest of us. So those are very similar debates as to what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were fighting over. The Pharisees believed in the oral Torah. That would be kind of more like, if the Pope says it, then that's how it is. (laughs) And the Sadducees were like, hey, if it's not in the Bible, doesn't count. So that was a huge debate. That was a huge point of disagreement and division. And Martin Luther wanted the people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. And in fact, after his, the beginning of his trouble, he had to go in hiding. And while he was in hiding, he translated the Bible into German, which really pissed off Rome. Rome did not like it that the average German could read the Bible if they knew how to read. But because the Bible was now in German, it was in their regular everyday vernacular. It wasn't some kind of lofty language like Latin that half of them didn't even speak. They could kind of follow along at church, but they went to church because they had to go to church. So as the Bible was translated into German, the average person could read it, and then they could see that some of the things that the Pope was saying wasn't accurate. And again, a lot of these little differences have been cleaned up over the years. Not all, a lot. So there was the idea that the Bible is the sole authority on matters of faith and teaching, period. The Pope and all religious leaders, all pastors, are sinners. No one is perfect like Jesus. No one has a special, unique dispensation above and beyond Scripture. And Jesus is the mediator between God and man. It's not a Pope. It's not a priest. It's not saying that confessing your sins is bad. Jesus is the mediator. And the forgiveness comes from Jesus, not from the Pope, not from the church, not from anyone else. And these differences, these divisions were huge. Luther believed in the priesthood of all people, all believers, rather than this this structure that starts in Rome. Now, it took him several years to articulate and kind of parse out all these little details. But as Luther worked through his theses and tried to parse them out and and kind of clarify them and bring them into order. He was offered the opportunity to just recount what you'd written. You'll be reappointed to your, your teaching position and no harm, no foul. You can keep going, doing what you're doing. And he so wanted to be part of the church. He's like, I don't want to stand against the Pope. 
I don't want to be kicked out of the church, but I cannot, my conscience cannot let me say what I said is wrong. I'm not comfortable with it and I'm not excited by it, but it's truth and I cannot stand against the truth. And so then when he was put in hiding, he was translating the the Bible into German, other people who had been circulating the same kind of ideas and certainly people who had read his theses and agreed with him really picked up that mantle and the kingdom of God, the church of Christ expanded exponentially. Now it expanded away from Catholicism and you know, there were then countries, you know, where you're a Catholic country, you're a Protestant country, you know, where do you fit in this? And yes, it was a division and it was a, a separation, but it wasn't necessarily bad in the big picture of things. So now we have these Protestant churches and here we are 500 years later, year 2000, and there are so many denominations in the Protestant church now, these didn't happen over today. They didn't, it didn't, you know, the Protestant church was never kind of a one united organism like the Catholic church was, or even the Orthodox church, because the Orthodox church was very much same theology, same style, same everything. But then it, it just, you know, if you lived in Russia and you did Russian culture and the Russian language, you did it this way. And if you're Greek and you're in Greece and you have the Greek culture and the Greek language, you do things this way. But a lot of it is very, very similar. The Orthodox Church is is very, very similar within those regional differentiating groups. Protestant churches, on the other hand, denominations started like right off. And it wasn't that they were denominations. It started off as people who followed a distinct leader, like there was Calvinism and there was Lutheranism. But almost... I mean, Martin Luther was still alive when Tyndale translated the Bible into English. So now we have the Bible in not only Latin and, of course, Greek and Russian because they translated their Bibles some time ago. Now you have it in English and you have it in German. And the translations started to really work through uh, the cultures. And as different people came to either write prolifically or talk about specific issues, and some of these issues had kind of been dealt with during the ecumenical councils, and some of them hadn't been. This is, okay, how do we look at scripture outside of the rule of Rome, if you will? And the debate about, do you baptize as an infant? Do you baptize as an adult? Well, that's one of the differences. That's one of the divisions in Protestant churches. Some baptize infants and some baptize adults. What role does the Holy Spirit fill in the church? What role does the Bible fill in the church? What is the role of women in the church? And there was, uh, I can't go into all the details and all the differences and all the nuances between all the different types of Protestant churches. And those divisions are very, can be very stark. I think it'd be very minor. And the question is, Is division always destructive? How do we want to look at these various facets of the body of Christ? There are many members, but one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. One body, many members. And then it goes on to, you know, many gifts, everyone given their own gift. So if we look at the human body and we think of Christianity as a cell, 
those cells started when God and man, God of the Holy Spirit, came upon the human of Mary. And those two cells met in Mary's womb and started the process of genetic recombination. And it it recombined into this new and unique creation of Jesus, fully God, fully man. And every cell of his body represented that. Now, I know there are people that question, well, does he have just Mary's genetic information? You know, if you did a DNA test on Jesus, would you just get Mary's genetic information? Or did the Holy Spirit bring genetic information with him? I I don't know. I don't know how that works. (laughs) It's just an interesting thought. (laughs) Sorry, it's a scientist to me. So you have these two combine in Christ and you've got Christ who changes the world. And what does Christ do after his sacrificial work on the cross? And he's resurrected and he meets with his followers and he talks to them and encourages them and tells them, I have to go and I'm going to what? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, which will indwell you. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And there's a profound reality there. When you consider the destruction of the second temple, and I say that happened at the moment of Jesus's crucifixion, because at the crucifixion, there is the darkening of the sky, the earthquake, and the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the inner court, that place where the the seat of God is, is ripped from top to bottom, meaning that is exposed, that Jesus has granted us entrance into the Holy of Holies. And it says that the Sadducees left the temple at that time, they found a new home. And then once the temple was completely destroyed, you know, the, the Romans just tore the whole thing down in like 70 AD, the Sadducees, which were the priests, kind of disappear into history. They're dispersed among all the nations like all the other Jews. It's profound. There's no need of a temple because you are the temple if you believe in God. That's powerful. So what does that mean to the world around you? When you are the light of the world, When you are in 1 John, starting in verse 6, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Be the light. In John chapter 13, and again, this is the New American Standard Bible 2020 version, John 13, chapter 34 and 35. I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Who are the others? Disciples of Christ. Loving disciples of Christ. And I hate denominations because the division causes destruction. The division causes destruction in our appearance of love for one another. Because not only do the Catholics and the Orthodox still not like each other, the Protestants don't like the Catholics and the Protestants don't like the Orthodox. And the Orthodox thinks the Protestants are just plain heretics. 
and the Orthodox thinks Rome is still wrong. If we are ever to meet this standard, love one another as I have loved you, that all people may know by your love for one another, we are failing miserably. And I don't need to tell you that the Protestants don't like the Protestants either. And when I say that, it's not just the Baptist minister in the pulpit on Sunday and the, I don't know, the charismatic leader in the pulpit on Sunday talking smack about each other or talking down the Catholics or I don't even know that anybody mentions the Orthodox, but I'm sure if they did, it wasn't going to be in a good way. Almost like there's some kind of cute, antiquated, different version of Catholicism, which in some ways they are, but they're, they're unique, they're different. And yet the kingdom of God's expanse will have no end. The only people who can end it is us. So instead of being a liver cell and saying that those brain cells are just goofy and gray, what the heck's with them? We need to look at the brain cells and say, hey, that's pretty cool, because without you, I wouldn't think to uh, process the stuff that I'm processing as a liver. One body, many members. That goes for Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Pentecostal, Baptist, Fundamental Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, you name it. We are all members of one body. The Bible should be the core tenant for all of us, but in areas that are kind of gray, instead of making extra laws and condemning other people because they don't follow them, because even Jesus made account for that. So remember Paul, you know, the guy who was Saul, who was trying to kill Christians. He was sent out by the Pharisees to hunt them down and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could kill them. Or I'm sure he just killed people on the side. I don't know. Paul wrote the book of Romans. And the Romans has within it a beautiful description of what it means to live the Christian life, to dedicate yourself to serving God and serving others. In chapter 14, he gets into this idea. And this idea would not have come to him as a Jew. This is something that the Holy Spirit had to reveal to him while God was teaching him during his three years in the desert. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, not to have quarrels over opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but the one who is weak eats vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard or contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge, the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One values one day over another. Another values every day. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and the one who eats does so with regard to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and the one who does not eat, for the Lord he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived, and he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? 
or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore do not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's or sister's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but the one who thinks something is unclean, to that person it is unclean. And I'm going to stop there in verse 14, but you get the point. It is so clear, biblically, that we are going to have these differences. And these differences about whether you should eat or shouldn't eat, whether you should recognize a day or not recognize a day, is going to probably lead to divisions, distinctions within the body. There's going to be heads, there's going to be feet, there's going to be livers and stomachs and lungs and hearts. Each one completing its purpose and its focus. And if we keep the focus on loving God and loving others, even when those others, or especially when those others are other believers, the world will look at us sideways, say, hey, I thought you guys hated each other. What's up with you? Is that what you want? Or do you want them to dismiss us because, oh, they're all hypocrites. They're just after stuff for themselves. They just want your money. They're just in it for themselves. They don't really care. No, I don't want people to think the followers of Christ who cared so much, he gave his own life, endured the pain and the frustration and the, the realities of being human And the pain and the struggle in the flesh, in the body, to hang there on the tree knowing he could call the angels down to remove him and take it from him. He willingly endured the cross. Who am I to say? Who's going to heaven and who isn't? Who's following God and who isn't? Who loves Jesus and who isn't? Because I'll tell you what, Jesus loves everybody and he wishes that none would perish, but all would repent. And that should be our goal. Division can cause destruction. And if we allow it, denominations and these groups, these large groups, the the Orthodox, the Catholic, the Protestant, we can become a cancer in the body of Christ, either by taking a superior attitude or by becoming lazy in our expression of love. Or our division can expand the kingdom of God to the outermost parts of the world. And I think you're with me. Now, it doesn't discount our other roles, but I think this is vital for us to get clear. Christian churches are not your enemy. Christians are not your enemy. People who don't love God are not your enemy. We have an enemy. The devil is trying to steal, kill, and destroy whatever he can because he knows his time is short. Stop giving him fodder to war against you. Start building up the body of Christ in all its beautiful divisions and parts. And we can burn bright. I can burn bright. You can burn bright. All the Orthodox can burn bright. All the Protestants can burn bright. All the Catholics can burn bright. All the believers in Jesus Christ can burn bright and push against the darkness of this world and our enemy so that those who don't yet know him can come to the table 
and participate and learn and make a relationship with him. Individually, a light, together, a city on a hill. Now go make disciples of nations, not just people, lots of people, the world over. This is the Living Brightly Podcast with Elaine Cross. I've really enjoyed this today and I hope you're enjoying it. You can learn more at elainecross.com. Thanks for joining me. Till next time.